Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. My guest this week is the internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and subject matter specialist on the topics of innovation, leadership, and sustainability, Nadia Zechembayeva. Before I introduce Nadia, however, let's start with our usual reframe segment. You know that I do this each week as a way to strengthen our positivity muscle and to hone our ability to view people and situations through multiple lenses. Remember, what you focus on grows. So from our last week's episode, positivitystrategist.com slash PS17, which was entitled Less Stress Business with Jamie Sussel Turner, the focus of the positivity lens was to create less stress in your life. I hoped you downloaded the Positivity Lens Activity Guide for this episode, that's 17, to reinforce your commitment to yourself and to strengthen your capacity to make a positive difference in your life. So how did you make out? The first activity was to determine to what degree work was encroaching on other aspects in your life, thereby adding some stress. Were you taking on things that could have been prevented? Now for me, I recognize that I'm good at working to deadlines, which actually puts stress on me and those that I'm working with. So what I'm really saying is that I tend to put off things until the final deadline. And that's a good insight. And I'm working at changing that behavior to cause less stress for me and others. The second part was that I invited you to think about what positive actions could you come up with to reduce stress in your life. And for me, I know that meditating and doing yoga are great stress reducers for me. And I also know that when I skip them, I notice a difference in my attitude during the day. The third part was to think about the smallest thing that has the greatest impact. And for me, I actually took time off to be with family who was visiting from Australia. And you know what? My work-life professional relationships did not fall apart. Although I do have a true confession, I did overlook one meeting, but that will be fine. So think about the smallest things that you can do to have the biggest impact. And as Jamie Sussel Turner said in her episode, stress is a choice. Today, I'm very excited as my guest is Nadia Jepsimbayeva, and we're connected through our shared interest in studies in Appreciative Inquiry and the Weatherhood School of Management. Now, my awareness of Nadia began while she was serving as the Associate Director at the Centre for Business as an Agent of World Benefit, which is endowed by Chuck Fowler. And you left there in 2008, Nadia, and have gone from strength to strength doing remarkable work all over the world. So Nadia, welcome to Positivity Strategist. 
Thank you so much. It's a very big honor to be here. Thank you. Now, I'm so looking forward to you bringing me up to date with all your wonderful work. And thank goodness for social media because we do keep somewhat informed through those channels, right? But before we dive into my interview, I'd just like to provide a little more context about Nadia. So Nadia, you're both an academic and a business owner. And in your academic role, you're on the faculty of IEDC Bled School of Management. And that's actually located in Bled, Slovenia. And that is such a gorgeous town. Um, How beautiful. Now, you're teaching courses in leadership, organizational behavior, strategy, change management, design thinking, and sustainability. Now, in your one of your other hats that you wear as a business owner, you oversee a group of companies active in real estate investment and consulting industries. And I'm also aware that you serve on the board of a number of prestigious organizations in the sustainability space, and you serve as an advisor to a number of others. Now you give talks, and I loved your TEDx talk at Klagerfurt in Austria. That was just wonderful. And you talk and you give talks at all sorts of institutions and organizations. You write papers for all kinds of publications, and you've authored two books. And by the way, um, Nadia, we provide listeners um, all the links to some of your articles, to your articles, and any other resources that you'd like to share so people can learn more about your contributions in the world. Now, the most recent book, which is published 2014, is called Overfished Ocean Strategy, Powering Up Innovation for a Resource-Deprived World. And this is published by Berit Kohler. And I'm really excited that you can talk to us about the message of your book, Nadia, and your inspiration and your aspiration for this work. I see you as a champion of sustainability. And Nadia, how did that come about? that as a young woman originally from Kazakhstan, you achieved your doctorate in the US and you have stepped out onto the global stage with a distinct voice in sustainability. So I want to hand over to you and I really would love to know what stimulated your passion for sustainability. (laughs) Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, And as I was listening to this uh, long it seems like life story of mine um, the question of why I end up being where I am uh, was also kind of percolating on my mind I have to say that um, being born in Soviet Union was definitely good enough of a reason to be worried or to be thoughtful about sustainability because I did live through the collapse of the country Kazakhstan was not uh, the instigator of the collapse you probably know that it's few presidents out of 15 republics that signed the deal that made United um, Soviet Union obsolete. And Kazakhstan was not part of that. So we didn't want out. We didn't plan to be out. And we just woke up one day and we didn't have a country anymore. Neither did we have government, currency, or any other institutes that would uh, help a whole nation survive. So looking through that period of life, is definitely a wonderful story of sustainability or unsustainability and learning from what makes a nation survivable or mm. thrivable is definitely still a question for me. I did come to United States, if you can say, by accident. I was working for uh, an organization that was trying to grow a new line of business 
and I got a scholarship to study that area in the United States. And when I came, I got to meet wonderful academics who almost violently in the most beautiful way pushed me into a PhD program. Mm -hmm. They pretty much said, we will take no for the answer and you're going to a PhD program. And that's how I came to know Case Western Reserve. And uh, sustainability was, again, um, not a planned activity. It was um, a combination of events. So I started my PhD in 2001, in August. And two weeks into my studies, September 11th happened. That day, David Cooperider, who is one of the most amazing, inspiring, and knowledgeable professors at Weatherhead, uh, was in New York City, and he was forced to drive back to Cleveland. And on his way, he often tells the story. He was really thinking about what's the role of business in what was going on. If the towers that came down were World and Trade Center towers, and there was something there about business, it was an issue of how does business contribute or does not contribute to peace and prosperity around the world so that terrorist attacks like that do not need to happen. So that was the start of my uh, engagement with the subject, with the first project, which we then called Business as an Agent of World Benefit. And our goal was to find example of businesses who are really agents of World Benefit through their products and services and operations. And to our dismay, after one year of research um, and going into more than 300 organizations, we could barely find three examples. So it was a, a big desire to say there is an alternative, there is a way for business to do business that allows us to create prosperity and growth without a negative impact, neither on society nor on the environment, and to make business even stronger rather than looking at these issues as a cost, as a negative for bottom line. So that's how the journey began for me. Wow, how beautiful. Um, I was actually not aware of that detail because when I was doing my certificate in appreciative inquiry, one of the components, of course, was to go out and interview executives using the uh, business as an agent of world benefit in, uh, appreciative inquiry interview template. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I found some wonderful golden nuggets, but this was mm-hmm. for me. This was in two thousand and four. So yes, we've come we've come quite a long way, and I'm wondering, have we come far enough? So as you, <laughs> uh, so if you, you're now talking about this started in two thousand and one, and now it's fourteen, thirteen years later, how has this sustainability space evolved for you? Well, on one side, I have to say that we made tremendous progress. So if 2001, 2002, we couldn't find three stories to be able to present globally as our um, best practices and the beacons to be aspiring to, today I get more than three stories a day. Mm -hmm. I get tens of stories a day that I have no capacity to even process. So in terms of the progress, the progress is tremendous. That's one side of the story. On the second side or the other side of the story is the fact that all of the progress sustainability movement made is nowhere close to the reality and to the challenges that business was facing. 
is almost like absolute majority of the language and the frameworks that we have developed. And I am the guilty party here, so it's not an offense on anyone more than a reflection onto my own work. It's not getting there. If I look at my clients or I look at my own company, I have to admit that absolute majority of managers are not aware and are not managing these issues at the level of seriousness, diligence, systemic approach that is required. So it's almost we are extremely successful and we've been victims of our own success as we made huge progress for a small population and no progress for the majority. Mm. Is it a case that when you dive into a subject, you learn so much, not only about the things that you are achieving, but you also are exposing the more things that can be done. So it's how you choose to look at it. You talk about the benefits and the progress that's been made, but that just exposes the other side. So, you know, it's the flip side of it. So when I ask the question how it's evolved, you know, what what are you appreciating about the things that are working? Let's go there first. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the things that mm-hmm. are working? And then we can talk about what what else needs to be done. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that will segue into your book, which has a fascinating title. And you can talk <laughs> about the strategies that you are recommending for people to be far more innovative in this space. So what's what are some sure. of the things, the examples, or what you're witnessing as something to celebrate in terms of improving our awareness or the um, recognizing that we need to have this on our agenda all the time? Mm-hmm. What is there to celebrate are actual products and services that are emerging every day. The surprise for me is to find a product that is even smarter than I ever expected it to be, that is using even more intelligence in the way it's designed that is extremely uh, beneficial in many, many ways for the world and is using the resources of the world in the most intelligent way. So those products and services are all around us and they are popping up as a new business as usual, whether I look at the way we're designing our sports shoes, for example. I'm looking around myself right now. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm looking around my house trying to give you a few examples rather than going abstractly. And for example, Nike Flyknits, which is a sports shoe that uses neat technology rather than making a template and then sewing pieces together. And when you sew pieces together, when you make shoes, by default, you're creating a huge amount of waste because mm-hmm. you're cutting out precise template. Well, Neat technology allows you to avoid all of that, and it's extremely intelligent from perspective of resources. What technology is that called? It's called knitting, K-N-I-T, so knit. Yeah, the way our grandmothers knitted our sweaters, now we're knitting our shoes. Great, thank you. Okay. Sure, sure. Um, On my table, as I'm speaking, I have a pair of scissors, and these scissors are not any different from any scissors that I've seen in my childhood, with exception of little detail, anywhere where pressure is not applied, the insides of the handle of the scissors is empty. It has no metal embedded into it. Mm. And this tiny little inch of metal that we're saving 
if you multiply it by hundreds of thousands of Caesars that are floating around the world, that's actually a huge step forward in terms of intelligent use of resources. And I can keep listing and listing of these ideas, but they are popping up everywhere. And it's a huge celebration for us that today we don't even notice them. We take them for granted mm-hmm. because this become a new expected business as usual. Yeah, that's great. That's great to begin to notice some of these innovations in the way that products are being made. And so the focus seems to be on not using excess materials, so how we prevent waste, right? That's one of the areas for Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, Sustainability as a term uh, has been used and abused in so many ways that it's almost like everyone you speak will have their own definition of what it is. I come back to basics, its ability to sustain, its ability to exist, to be here today and tomorrow. And in that sense, there are many dimensions of sustainability, starting, of course, with financial sustainability. We cannot neglect that area and assume that we can make something wonderful for the world at the expense of financial sustainability. If we're not meeting the first requirement, which is financial sustainability, we are automatically unsustainable. And then on top of that come issues that we traditionally excluded from financial sustainability conversation because they were not relevant. We, in economics, for example, call them externalities. These are things that happen to the external world outside of our business model, and therefore we do not need to count them in our business modeling. And today there's no such thing as externality. I cannot find one that doesn't come back to you and bite your bottom line. Mm -hmm. So we come to the world where you used to think that air pollution is an externality or water pollution is an externality, waste is an externality, impoverishing a particular community is an externality. Today, that's a direct impact on your ability to survive. And in that sense, it becomes your very tangible financial sustainability issue. Yeah, yeah. What's your business, the business that you're in? I accidentally, (laughs) with the help of my husband, well, with the lead of my husband, got into a number of businesses. Originally, we started with consulting, and from that grew an investment arm where we invest in manufacturing, we invest in services, we invest in real estate, and it's always a kind of new journey. And that also really informs the way I engage with clients in my consulting arm. For example, one of my biggest clients right now is mining a company, a very large 75,000 people mining company. And my own business impacts the way I work with another company this particular one and any other company. Mm. So you're modeling this mindset, right, in the companies that you're working with and you're engaging with and doing business with? Absolutely. Sustainability is not an issue of one company. You cannot be sustainable as a company if the world around you is uh, operating in a different mindset. Um, Let me make more specific. So imagine that a company would like to reduce waste and would like to make sure that waste that I generate is actually used for production cycle of another company. If there's no other company that would like to consider that as an opportunity, any efforts I create are completely empty. 
So sustainability is extremely system driven. This whole system approach requires a lot of discipline. And at some points, it's almost becoming comical. Uh, recently, I had a work, um, an engagement with a banking client. And there are a group of about 30 senior executives from a bank, a very large banking organization here in Europe. And I had to give them a very difficult assignment, which is create a very detailed report on the risks and business opportunities related to biodiversity loss. And if you are a banker and you're, let's say, a, a chairman of a board of a particular country branch of a bank, and somebody says to you, what does biodiversity have to do with your business? Your first reaction is comical. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it has nothing to do with my business. I'm in banking. I'm in services. I'm far away. And once you start digging deeper and take one species, a bee, and look at what happens to your portfolio of loans if the bees disappear, mm. you immediately see that you will have a huge amount of toxic assets if there is no agriculture anymore, if majority of your agriculture clients or clients who are dependent on agriculture are collapsing. And that's just one species. Mm. <laughs> so it is at some points a, a difficult conversation for many businesses because for centuries they didn't need to think systemically. But we are living in a new world and this is both a risk and a tremendous opportunity. Mm. The systemic thinking. I remember when I first became aware of it when I was doing my master's degree some many years ago, I found it so exciting. And it was like, well, how can you not think about the interdependence of all things? Mm -hmm. The bee example is a beautiful example. And, you know, nature is the best metaphor for this, right? Sure. Um, in terms of your book now, can we switch to that a little bit more specifically? Sure. Because in that you do have a number of principles Mm -hmm. Even the title of the book, I'd love you to talk a little bit about the overfished ocean strategy, powering up innovation for a resource-deprived world. So talk to us a little bit about the title, Nadia. So the book is a perfect example of my reflection on the progress that sustainability movement has made. And the more I worked in business, including my own companies, the more I realized that we need a different language, a different set of tools, so that middle management is excited and supported rather than feeling guilty and overwhelmed by sustainability conversation. And generally speaking, wherever I go into companies and I ask, would you like to come to your next sustainability meeting in this company? Most people laugh or even worse, ready to cry because for them, that's the ultimate punishment. Mm -hmm. And that's a very good diagnostic that we have created a need for a completely different language. The one that is exciting, inspiring, moving, the ones that deals with the issues that middle management struggle with every day. And unfortunately, the language of sustainability is not that. I can illustrate it. I actually dedicated a whole chapter to this um, subject. But just to illustrate what I mean by the inspiring language, um, very often in public discourse in media and business conferences, the word sustainability is held as this highest ideal, this amazing direction uh, where we all need to go. But then you dig deeper into this word and you ask yourself, why don't managers get all excited about it? Well, 
Imagine a situation that uh, today's Tuesday, so we have a wonderful podcast and then later in the day you decide to go out and have a dinner and you come out of the restaurant and you bump into your old neighbor. You've lived together, you had many barbecues and then you moved away and you haven't seen each other for a few years. And you ask the neighbor, how's life, how's work? And then you ask, how's your marriage? And you hear the answer, sustainable. Mm-hmm. When you hear that answer, it's hardly an ideal that you want to hold on to. I don't want my marriage to be just sustainable. Mm-hmm. I don't want my company to be just sustainable. Neither do I want my economy to be just sustainable. I want it to be amazing. <laughs> I want it to be exhilarating, exciting, mm. beautiful, but not sustainable. So this is just a kind of comical way of thinking about the nature of this word, but there's a much more depth to it. Mm. So I started looking for companies that decided to go higher, go beyond sustainability, go towards something that is amazing and exciting and beautiful. And for most of those companies, it had to do with the issue of strategy and hence the name of the book over fish ocean strategy um, there are really only two schools of strategy that are currently actively in the works when the business is deciding to do major strategy overhaul when the business is trying to decide what should we do in our industry in our sector so the red ocean strategy is staying in the existing market trying to beat the competition. And since there are a lot of existing competitors in existing markets, the name of Red Ocean comes from the bloodiness of mm-hmm. this market because all competitors are trying to kill each other. It's a kind of dog-eat-dog environment mm-hmm. and the blood is all over when one company loses a market share. And that's one option. And the second option is the Blue Ocean strategy with the idea of going in a direction where no competition exists, create new market space. And the examples such as Circo Soleil come to mind um, most often when we illustrate the ocean strategy. Circo Soleil didn't want to compete in a traditional circus business, mm-hmm. so it created a completely new market space, a kind of circus entertainment for adults. Mm-hmm. So these are the two options, the blue ocean and the red ocean. And what I was looking at is a number of companies who started telling themselves, well, Whether the oceans are blue, red, rainbow, any color, if there are no resource base that supports the market, there is no strategy. So we need to look at a different dimension of strategy, which is, do I have a resource base that supports what I do? And am I able to protect that resource base through innovation, whether it's innovation in products and services or it's innovation in operations, distribution, logistics, and everything else? And that's where the book came about. It's a search for amazing new breakthrough innovators who are looking beyond blue and red into a new dimension, which is immense resource intelligence. And here by resource, I mean everything from the actual raw materials to human resources to such things as stable climate as a resource. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to pay attention to? Well, uh, there's really immense amount of data on online, on the market space, in the public area, but it's not collected in a way managers can understand. So the first thing that companies do if they really want to develop a 
resource intelligence strategy, what they need to do is they need to look at the raw data, what's happening with their resource base. And in the book, I just offer a few snippets. Um, every company is different. So in your industry, you will have a different answer. But pretty much across the board, any resource you want to touch, it's not just oil, every single one, helium, um, fresh water, uh, vitamin C, um, stable climate, uh, social stability, any resource that is crucial for your business mm. is on the decline. It's being overused, overfished, if you wish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in that sense, the first step is the realization of where we are and how far we are from a complete exhaustion of resources. And in different industries, that really varies differently. And the second thing that needs to happen is remodeling and redesigning your products and services and processes so that you are able to use the resource decline as a source of immense competitive advantage rather than as a resource of panic and horror and sadness in your business as many companies tend to look at it as a kind of Armageddon now situation. And in redesigning, companies have used specific principles. So you mentioned that the book is filled with principles as examples. Indeed, I was trying to see what's common between all companies that really approach resource intelligence as a business opportunity. There are some things that are common between them. Number one is the principle number one is they all look at the current economy, which is this linear economy where we mine something out of the land, whether it's in mining industry or agriculture or fisheries. And we use that resource barely once and then we throw it away as a cheap plastic fork. That economy, that linear approach to economic activity has to give away to a circular economy. And that's the way, of course, nature does it for billions of years. Nature doesn't have waste. Waste is food for the next step. So when my body dies, this is not a sad event for nature. This is a beautiful feast for millions of bacteria who suddenly can eat me. Mm -hmm. And they're able then to produce soil. And out of that comes a new tomato. And that tomato hopefully feeds the next human being. So nature is circular. And the companies that are realizing that this is the next big thing are already today designing products and services that fit the circular dimension. So they themselves are really creating a full circle in that sense and not dependent on resource decline. Beautiful. Mm. The company that is my favorite today, because I find every month a new favorite company, is Mud Jeans. Mud Jeans is a Dutch uh, fashion company. They produce jeans uh, that are not sellable. You cannot buy them. You can only rent them. Mm -hmm. And of course, of course, when you think about renting jeans, most people say, yeah, that's dirty and why would I need secondhand jeans? You do not buy second jeans. Jeans, neither do you rent secondhand jeans. Renting mechanism is just a solution to hold on to your own resources. So every gene that is returned after the rent period is up is actually fully shredded and made into new jeans uh, fabric. And it's a mechanism to have a different relationship with your customers. It's a mechanism to remain the holder and the owner of the asset, which is the raw material itself, is a mechanism to keep a full circle 
going so that you keep reproducing the same um, genes rather than constantly being dependent on new raw material. That's a wonderful example. Yeah. It's more than recycling. I mean, you know, you think about, you think, oh, well, that's kind of like recycling, but it's much more than recycling, right? It's, uh, it's a much deeper way yeah. of thinking yeah. about the whole economy. So recycling is a very narrow activity. Mm-hmm. But if you imagine that our entire economic space becomes circular, mm-hmm. in that space, the issue of growth becomes obsolete because you can use and reuse the same molecule infinite amount of times. And in that sense, you can grow the experiences and benefits indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Today, the growth is limited because our ability to consume is also limited by our ability to produce. So we are extremely wasteful in our way of economy, but there is a beautiful alternative. Yeah. And so that's one principle. What about some of the others? Um, The second principle is the one that um, most companies are really finding it very difficult to deal with. And it has to do with the reality of where do we get inspiration for competitive advantage? Most companies, when they look around and they're trying to find a new sources of competitive advantage, borrow it or get inspired either with their own employees or their competitors, their customers or their immediate suppliers. Mm-hmm. So the view is very limited to this tiny, tiny, narrow vertical slice in this huge horizon, which is the global value chain. Mm-hmm. And the second principle, if the first one is moving from linear to circular, the second one is really starting to orient itself away from vertical towards horizontal type of thinking. So instead of getting inspired and getting new sources of value in your immediate surrounding, you get it far, far away from it. Mm-hmm. The example of bees and banking is very much a vertical to horizontal example, but the industry that really learned this lesson in a painful way is the coffee industry. Mm-hmm. In the early uh, 2000s, we lived through a huge coffee crisis where the prices of coffee were forced below any kind of maintainable, sustainable level. It was way below the cost of production. So a huge number of farmers left their farming areas and went to urban areas to make money. But the coffee industry didn't know that. They learned it only next year when the harvest was due and there's no harvest because the farmers are no longer there. And not only there's no harvest for this year, but it takes five to six years for an average coffee tree Mm -hmm. to become productive. So it was damaged not only for that one year, but for many, many years ahead. And the coffee industry today really takes care of the entire horizon of the value chain, as they say, from tree to cup. Yeah. And that's what many companies are learning how to do as well. Um, It's a difficult process. Um, We are just in the mining company, I mentioned, we're just starting this conversation. We are jokingly calling it uh, from hard rock to heavy metal. (laughs) But that's very much is a conversation. Do we really understand what it takes at every stage and do we know who are the players at every stage and what's a possibility for innovation and value at every stage so let me give you an example with the coffee industry so when the coffee industry realized that it cannot destroy its suppliers of the suppliers of the suppliers of the suppliers which mm-hmm. are the farmers 
it wanted to figure out how do we create more value so we can pay them higher price. And then the companies went to their suppliers, to the actual farmers, and they discovered too much of their surprise is the farmers have no clue what we do with coffee bean because they don't drink coffee. Yeah. They literally have no clue. And when the company started showing them how do you dry the coffee bean and how you roast it and what do you do with it and how you drink coffee, they, in a conversation, discovered that there are things that farmers can do on site and therefore earn their money not to be a kind of charity case. And one of the easy things they could do is drying coffee. So the big roasting coffee roasting company said, okay, you will be also drying coffee and then we will pay you higher. And too much of the surprise of the coffee companies, they learned a new value opportunity. It's much cheaper to transport dry coffee than it is to transport mm -hmm. green coffee. And that is a business opportunity. They discovered that it's much cheaper to transport dry coffee than it is to transport green coffee. And it is a huge business savings. That business saving, that opportunity would never be discovered if the coffee producers, the coffee roasters would not go straight to the source, to the farmers and together look for the opportunities. Right. So this is the second principle, supplementing the vertical orientation in business to the horizontal orientation as well. Uh, I recently had a conversation with the CEO of an oil company after this kind of presentation and she said, wow, that really strikes me. We've been so proud of creating a vertically integrated company. Maybe today we need to start thinking about horizontally integrated company. And it's really that kind of mindset. And the third principle is the one that I already hinted at with the margin story. But it's really the principle that uh, companies display more and more often today. They are no longer able to grow by growing through volume. So if you think about the way businesses grow today, most of them create revenues by selling more stuff to more people. That's a simple formula. So either you're selling more of your product to your existing customers or you're selling your product to a new customer. But the general formula is always about sell more stuff to more people. That's the way you grow. Mm -hmm. And in the world where we are seeing rapid decline of resources, where you're seeing huge deterioration of social stability, so there are markets you cannot enter anymore. All of those resources tell you that you simply can no longer sell more stuff to more people because you cannot produce more stuff when there's no resources left. Mm -hmm. And with that, you need to figure out what are you going to grow with. And the most innovative companies grow by growing value rather than stuff. So take away from the margins and let's go to one of the biggest stuff company, Rolls-Royce. What comes to your mind when you hear Rolls-Royce? Prestige. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, most customers would agree with you that the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the words Rolls-Royce is luxury and exclusivity. But the amazing thing about Rolls-Royce is that today it makes most of its money not in a luxury segment, but in aviation segment. Mm -hmm. And even more interestingly, they're not anymore a manufacturer, they're a service company. So the actual structure of their revenues is that they make more money on services than they do on manufacturing of original equipment. How does that happen? Rolls-Royce today, for many, many of its customers, does not sell the engines. 
it runs them, it leases them, mm-hmm. which allows the customers to pay by the hour. This is the famous power by the hour model, mm. meaning that you pay as long as you fly. If you don't fly, you don't pay. You pay for the hour flight. And that is a very attractive value opportunity for the customers because they don't need to finance 20 years of engine life up front. But it's also an amazing opportunity for Rolls-Royce because it keeps the ownership of the engine. It's able to close the loop. Remember linear mm-hmm. to circular? Mm-hmm. So it's able to create a circular economy at its own level. It's able to service the engine with much better quality and really try to extend the life of the engine in its most intelligent and safe way. And it's a win-win for everyone involved. And that's the third principle that I found in many companies, which is moving away from product-based growth towards value-based growth, where we create more and more value with the same amount of resource. Mm. These are great examples. It really brings home the principles here. That was the exciting Mm. part of the whole story Mm. is to find how many companies are going well beyond Mm -hmm. the tiny little efforts such as recycling or Mm -hmm. um, any kind of other thing we associate with uh, sustainability movement. Yeah. It's the whole relationship is shifting. Mm -hmm. The relationship between the customers and the innovators and, you know, the whole value chain is just very different. You look at it very differently. Absolutely. And that awareness, we're growing in our awareness too. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's getting also more exciting, if you will. It's getting sexy (laughs) to get into this area. Young people want to invent this kind of product. Line managers want to become champions of this kind of business Mm -hmm. models rather than feeling guilty and overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and tired and sad to discuss these issues. But that really feeds into the message that I'm wanting to create in the world is how we choose to reframe and look at things. You were telling stories about the managers feeling somewhat depleted by the enormous task ahead of them when they think about this big topic, how do you get a handle around sustainability? But when you begin to look at all the little things that can impact and how you're telling these stories, it becomes very exciting. Absolutely. And if you focus on the possibilities and the opportunities, that's what what energises people, right? And people want to contribute to these kind of successful, future-oriented, how we can really make a difference. And I'm just thinking as I'm listening to your stories about children in classrooms, where we're now beginning to focus on when you think about the clothing that you're wearing or the food that you're eating, how did those genes get on your body or how did that food get on your plate? We're becoming so much more conscious of this, which to me is very exciting. I think it's a very beautiful time to live. And the amount of good news that I see every single day is really wonderful. It does not mean that we forget the challenges and start seeing Kumbaya, but it does mean that we take these challenges as the most amazing Mm. opportunity. And here I have to highlight that it's the most amazing business opportunity. Mm. It's not just a social agenda. It's not a humanitarian effort. It's also a business issue. 
it's a business risk and a tremendous opportunity for any companies around the world mm. to deal with these issues. Mm. But what you're requiring, what you're asking there are two things. One is that we really start to take responsibility and we have to look through that kind of lens. But I think when you talk about it's not a humanitarian, only a humanitarian issue and it's not only an economic issue, it's really looking at all that through all those diverse lenses and, you know, where you sit in a business or where you sit in a society, naturally there's going to be a preferred lens that, you know, you engage in the world through this particular dimension. But we also are becoming far more aware that there are so many multiple different diverse lenses. And, sure. And how we begin to appreciate all of those because we all we all contribute in some way. We are all beneficiaries and we are all contributors. Absolutely. I love to see or oh, start a conversation. I love to see the discovery that happens in the eyes and minds of people when they start a conversation by saying they, you know, they do something wrong. They want to suck mm. the blood out of the economy. They are polluting. They are trying to maximize profit. And suddenly, after a short number of questions, are you an investor? Are you sure? Do you have a pension fund? Mm -hmm. Does your government have a pension fund on your name called Social Security? Then you are an investor. Are you a consumer? Do you vote with your purchases? Yes, you do. Few of those kind of small questions. And suddenly you realize there is no they. We are all consumers and voters and investors and managers mm -hmm. and parents and siblings and all at once. Yeah. We, we, it's all we about are. we, yeah. The disasters that happen in the world, we create them. The wonderful things that happen in the world, we co-create them too. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that there are five principles. I would love to hear how you describe the last two, Nadia. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will do them quickly. So the first three principles that I just mentioned, line to circle, vertical to horizontal, and product-based growth to value-based growth, those three principles are really focusing on the life outside of the company and relationship of the company to its environment. The last two principles are really about looking internally, looking on the inside of the company and aligning your mindsets and operations and daily activities to the new realities of business. So the third principle really had to do with the role of planning in our life. Strategic planning in general is a huge obsession uh, of pretty much any manager. It's one of the coolest team to be on is to be on strategic planning team. And planning on its own, there's nothing wrong with planning. It's a most wonderful activity and extremely necessary activity the problem is the plants themselves mm -hmm. so if planning is a useful and beautiful activity the plants are completely useless i have not seen a company that is able to hold on to its plan any longer than five seconds after printing it mm -hmm. because the market conditions change so all of the assumptions that you put into your plan change immediately. Mm. And then we're so obsessing with staying on course with a plan where it is a dead document. The planning activity helped us imagine the scenarios and become more agile as the world changes. But the plan itself doesn't allow us to do that. It makes us extremely um, 
rigid and extremely tense. And that's what you see on the uh, faces of all the people who are trying to defend budgets or meet at the budgetary meetings during the year. You get see a lot of tension because how in the world am I supposed to stay on budget Mm -hmm. and on plan if everything around me changed? Now, is there an alternative? Yes. The best innovative companies show us that there is. And they still do the planning exercise. But what they hold on themselves to in terms of accountability and internal discipline is not the plan, but the business model. Mm. And there are wonderful tools. Uh, the overall movement around business modeling and business model canvas and business model generation, that movement has done us wonders. And there are plenty of solutions for us already. But it is about figuring out what are the crucial pieces in our vehicle which is the business model, the vehicle that drives us from point A to point B and not worry about the specific details of being at specific place at specific time. Mm -hmm. That's a much more agile way. And then the fourth or fifth principle, the final principle, is extremely crucial when we talk about sustainability in general. It is about who owns this issue. And whenever I come to a company and I see a sustainability department or vice president of sustainability, mm-hmm. that's pretty much a lost cause. That's mm-hmm. it. It's mm-hmm. a poor scapegoat who's been found as a scapegoat and whose job will be to publish a beautiful sustainability report on glancy, beautiful, sustainable forestry paper, and <laughs> that's it. Yeah. And that's a very sad thing to see. So the final principle is moving away from department to mindset because this is about the way we see the world and the best people to invent new products and solutions are people who are actually doing it as a daily work, which is line managers. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't become part of a line management life, then it won't become part of a business solution. It won't become part of strategy. The company that I adore is Nauf Insulation. Nauf is a part of a larger construction material group of companies, and they are present globally in many, many markets, one of the best construction materials in the world. And what they decided to do is they decided to make the competences needed for sustainable value creation required for all of its senior management Mm -hmm. team. And not only they made them compulsory, but they also provided a huge amount of resources to develop those competencies. So things like appreciative inquiry Mm -hmm. is a required Mm -hmm. competence now Mm -hmm. among all of the managers, whether you are a plant manager, whether you are a product developer, whether you are a logistics specialist, whether you are a scientist developing a new type of insulation material, appreciative inquiry today is a required competence for you. And that's and among many other sustainability-related competencies. And that's a very brave thing to do. Very few companies take it at that level of a mindset mm-hmm. rather than giving it as a mm-hmm. department responsibility. So how was that started in the organization in NALF Insulation? Where did that drive come from to make these competencies organizational-wide and for every manager to have them? It was a combination of forces between the CEO of the company and the group HR director. So the CEO was very, very direct and mm-hmm. kind of non, um, um, non-wavering on the position around sustainability. 
insulation as business is a sustainability business. Right. And this is the company mm -hmm. that has all the opportunities to become a leader in taking something that is a huge challenge, mm -hmm. which is a climate change and the um, energy efficiency, mm -hmm. and make it a huge business rather than looking at it as a huge burden. Yeah. So if this is your core business, if you made energy efficiency the source of your competitive advantage, then it's very natural that you need to be fully aware and constantly um, kind of active around the area of sustainability. This needs to be your bread and butter. This cannot be a hobby on the weekends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> This cannot be a job for a sustainability mm -hmm. department. This has to be the lens with which you look at the world. So that was a realization between the CEO and the HR director. And then the HR director looked at some of the early writings of mine and um, the previous book uh, that we put out was Chris Laszlo, Embedded Sustainability, mm -hmm. has a number of competencies that we talk about. And they just said, okay, we'll, we'll make them compulsory. Right. And they called me up and said, how do we do this? And for me, of course, that was... A huge honor, but also a huge surprise um, because very few companies make such a big step and saying, this is it. This is what our business must look like. And this is how we're going to uh, do it. So they, of course, first developed a full com um, competency kind of grid mm -hmm. that really looks at behaviors. What does it mean mm -hmm. if appreciation is a required competency in a daily behavior? What does it look like? That's great. Yeah. And then from that, we worked a little bit on that. And from that, we thought about what kind of resources do the managers need. So we created a series of experiences for them where they can take their present problems, not artificial cases, but their real business problems that they're struggling with today mm -hmm. and see what can this new competences help you accomplish in a more efficient and a more effective way. Mm. Yeah, Nadia, what I'm hearing, and you mentioned it earlier, that the first step is really this realization. Is it a kind of wake-up call that some of these executives or companies are recognizing? And so I'm curious to know with all the research that you've done and the work that you're implementing, this wake-up call, what's the driver of it? Is it coming from things aren't working or is it coming from things are working? Well, it's very hard for anyone to be inspired by things that are not working. Right. If I do a keynote speech and I show 10 things that are worse mistakes, mm -hmm. there are some benefits in that if, I'm able to bridge it into how do you turn it around. Mm -hmm. But most people are inspired by best practices and examples of amazing solutions right. and amazing inventive ways to bring things together. So I do think that the reason why, for example, this book is filled with so many cases and stories is because I wanted to show how far we already are, <laughs> how far along are we in, uh, in mm. fixing the issues and how many companies are already making tons of money and doing a huge amount of work mm. for the world. And I'm not ashamed to say tons of money because if we do not find a way to speak the language with a middle manager and the middle manager as a business in general is a very simple, very beautiful binary system it's either you in plus or you in minus this mm -hmm. is it mm -hmm. there's no 
there's no voodoo. It's very honest. And many companies laugh at me when I say business is very honest. It's very honest in its own system of coordination, which is binary system, plus or minus. Right. Either we're increasing the revenues or we're decreasing the revenues. Yeah. Are we increasing the net income or are we increasing the net income? It's a very simple conversation. So if we want this area, if we want sustainability conversation to finally get to the mainstream, Mm-hmm. We have to meet businesses at least halfway. We cannot keep pounding on them as this horrible, monstrous, greedy bastards who are trying to suck the blood out of the earth. That is hardly the businesses I know, and I meet thousands of businessmen mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Most of them are great people who wake up in the morning and their first agenda is not how do I suck the blood. Mm-hmm. Their first agenda is how do I make something work today? That's what their life is about. So if we meet them halfway, if we find a way to inspire them with amazing solutions, if we find a way to make their life a bit easier, they will be the first one to champion this area. They will be the first one to take it on as a daily activity rather than keep looking at it as as a dangerous animal that is trying to attack them. That would be my message. I love the way that you're saving that. And um, it is, I mean, there's full of lots of inspiring stories in this book that allows you to see what is possible and what we can do together on this planet and what we can do for the future of our children. I, I think it's, it's very inspiring. Let me ask you this one, Nadia. So what's your greatest hope going forward as you continue to do this work and you're inspired by what you see and you're inspiring others? A few years ago, five years ago, a person I never met before wrote me a message and said, "Um, I read some of your articles. I'm looking at this field. I'm a financier. I've been a CFO of a major corporation. And now I'm back home to my home country. And I'm thinking broader and thinking of a PhD in sustainability. And would you have a chance to chat? And I said, sure, um, where are you in the world? So we aligned the time zones and she said, I'm in Slovenia. And I said, how curious, uh, two months ago I moved to Slovenia, do you want to have a coffee? <laughs> and uh, in 2009 we started a non-for-profit organization. It's a youth think tank, which they later renamed into youth think do tank because mm-hmm. they said we don't just think, we actually do things which is now an association of 40,000 people around the world in every country and territory, young people, people younger than 30 years old, who are trying to figure out how do we build a different kind of future. The organization is called Challenge Future, and this is a community that really reminds me of what this work is about. I have no doubt as I said to her on that first coffee, and she asked me, do you have hope? My first answer to her was yes and no. I have no doubt that the era ahead of us is requiring the kind of transformation that humanity have not yet even conceived mm-hmm. in all of its existence. So I have no doubt that the years ahead of us are uh, a tremendous, tremendous challenge, whether you look at our social systems, our monetary system, the climate change, the water issues, the energy issues, pretty much every bloodline of our humanity is really Mm -hmm. in a very, very delicate state. 
And at the same time, I also have no doubt that we will make it through. So what I'm looking forward to is in about 20 years looking back and reminiscing of how we've done that. Mm-hmm. I will sleep very well when that happens. That's awesome. I love this this youth think do tank challengefuture.com is it or .org? challengefuture.org. .org. Yeah, yeah, so we'll make sure all these links are available on the show notes page. And Nadia, I have to say that I absolutely love your realism. And for me, realism is that it's a future filled with possibility. People think, you know, when you're being realistic, it's like, well, you got to be realistic, right? But this is real for me. I mean, this is really real. And what you're doing in the world, you're contributing to this this reality that we can co-create. Thank you so much for all that you're doing and for spending this time and explaining what your strategy is to power up innovation for a resource-deprived world. Thank you so much. It's (gasps) been my pleasure. All right, Nadia. This has been such an exciting episode. Check out the show notes at positivitystrategist.com slash PS18 and download the Positivity Lens activity for this week. Nadia speaks to the leader in us all, whatever our context, whether we're working for the non-profit world or the profit world, we're a homemaker or we're a student in the world or anything in between. So our Positivity Lens activity for this coming week, therefore, is significant. What redesign principles might we engage in? Download the Positivity Lens Activity Guide to do your positivity practice for this coming week. Now we all have the power to redesign our lives to be more intelligent about how we use resources, what we consume, what we waste on a daily basis, what we buy, and how that impacts global resources. So what principles can you take action on? Principle one, what can you reuse and not throw away? How can you not waste resources such as water, power, people, products, and what else? Principle two, what can you learn about intelligent resource deployment from outside your usual sphere of influence? Look outside your normal vertical experience and expand it horizontally. Go for breadth. Principle three. How can you add greater value to your relationships, including clients or vendors, so you extend and expand the mutual benefits and that sense of reciprocity? Principle four. In which ways can you show flexibility and adaptability thereby diminishing rigidity or attachment to specific outcomes or expectations. And principle five, what's your mindset around the issue of diminishing resources on the planet? What's your ownership in this big issue? Do you recognize that it's my issue or do you think it's someone else's? So you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. 
Thank you for listening. And remember, what you focus on grows. So grow towards your best. <laughs>